It's coming. Yay. Okay. It's good. Wonderful to be with you this morning. Um, we wanted to start by showing a, uh, a video. Uh, were any of you here three years ago when we came for the first time? Okay, Laura's going to come up in a minute, okay? I'm the boring one, reserved British. She's more excited than I am. But three years ago, we talked a little bit about our transition, but you guys helped us start our campus in Paris, and we wanted to show you one of our students made this video. It's not quite the same as the video you just saw. It's pretty hard to follow that. But just want to show you what you helped us do because you helped us when we started preparing to open the campus in Paris. Uh, you sent us a very large offering and which also helped us with REM in Haiti, but I wanted you to see. So if you'd like to watch the screens, this is what you guys helped us do.
Isn't that exciting? Half of our students are pastors from Raymond Paris. So I want to talk a little bit this morning about how to be led by the Spirit of God and how God has led us and what He's doing through us. But I think it's important for you as well to know that you are led by the Spirit of God. Pastor Mark said, Mike said something last week that there was the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire are in us. And I think that was just an amazing, amazing thought and image for us. Uh, the Bible says in Romans 8, 14, for as many as led by the Spirit of God, they are sons of God. And we've been led, we were led to go to Rhema in 1982, we were led to go to France, we had the call to France in 1980, we had the joy of being in prayer school with, with Beth. Um, the last month we were at Rhema and prayed through so many things, and we went to France with one mandate, it was to start a church in the city of Nice called Victoire Saint Chrétien. And God then started to add things to that mandate. Just wanted to say this, and then Laura's going to share something. Um, but you need to know that you can be led by the Spirit of God. And you need to ask God what He has for you before you ask others. And Mike said something the other day. He said, Pastor Mike, he said this. He said, if God hasn't told you something different to do, keep doing what you're called to do. And for 33 years, we kept doing what God called us to do, which was to plant a church and to grow a church. And then God said, so do something different. Once you believe you've heard from God, you need to then take counsel from spiritual people so you don't run too fast or, or in the wrong direction because we have people around us. But first you need to hear from God and then you need to keep doing it. And we're in a society that doesn't like keep doing it. And we kept doing it for 33 years until God said, now is the time to change. And it was a lot earlier than I thought. But praise God, we did it and we're seeing the fruit of it. When God calls you to do something, there is always fruit. Amen? Don't try to do what others are doing. And don't give your opinion to people what you think they should be doing. We throw people off all the time because we think they should be doing this and they should be doing that. No, none of us are the same. We can learn from each other. We can be encouraged by each other. But we need to do what God is calling us to do. Laura. Hallelujah. Everybody say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Now in French, Jésus, Jésus. est Seigneur. Seigneur. D, say. Je suis une bénédiction. Une bénédiction. Je, suis Je suis un miracle, un miracle. ambulant. That means I'm a blessing. I'm a miracle going somewhere to happen. And, and what God spoke to me to tell you, because we say that always in our church when we're there. We haven't been pastors the last two years. I loved being a pastor. You know, though, when you say Jesus is Lord, Sometimes you have to allow him to change your heart. And changing your heart isn't always easy. But the Holy Spirit is so gentle. He just starts to change it little by little by little. And you guys have such kicking worship here. It's easy for God to change your heart. I remember when I got saved in 1977, I said, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do. But I never want to be a missionary. I never want to be a pastor's wife. And I never want to go to Africa. But anything you want, God, I'll do it. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give to you the desires of your heart. 
You know, and sometimes our heart and our head conflicts. And what God said to tell you this morning is, preparation is a demonstration of your faith. And some of you think that God's left you on the shelf. You've been here soaking up in an amazing church where the word of God is preached with precision, with accuracy, and with attention to detail. You have a spirit of God moving in Southern California, which is a rare thing. You know, but the rain's going to fall. You know, we were up in Santa Barbara this week, and we were praying. When we, when we were preaching, John kept saying, get ready, get ready, get ready. Get ready, get ready, get ready. And that's what God would say to you. Get ready. That rain is going to fall. That Holy Ghost rain, the latter rain, Zechariah 10, verse 1 and 2. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send forth rain in its season, the latter rain and the former rain. Not a rain that's going to be a devastational, but a gentle rain. That will bring the harvest in. Jesus is coming back, and he's going to use you to do it. So tonight, we're going to have a whole lot of fun in the Holy Ghost. We are going to laugh. I'll, I'll be really good this morning and not try to laugh too loud because I love laughing. But we're going to have fun, and God's going to do miracles. So everybody say, get ready. Get ready. Get ready. I'm ready, and I'm going to get it. So God told us that it was time to hand over the church, had no idea who to, but we just started preparing and God gave us a, a plan. We went to other people who had handed over their church, talked to them, asked them how they did it, read books, prepared for it. We were in that phase when we were here last time. Anybody here when we were here last time? You remember? Yeah, we were kind of, what are we doing? This is totally new. We've been pastors for 33 years. We know how to do it. How do we do missionary? missions. And, and so God just started changing us, showing us, and uh, we've had lots of fun. And God is doing really, really good. We put a little table back there. If you'd like to have a card and want to pray for us, that would be wonderful. Just want to give you a few updates because what we're doing now is Bible schools. So you saw that was Paris. That was the first graduation of Rhema Paris. It's doubled since then. It's really exciting. We have three schools this year, 2019. It's our 10th year of graduating uh, classes, we graduated 66 students from our three schools in Nice, in Paris, and in Switzerland. First year, charter class was 16. And we're going to open a fourth campus. You saw one lady in there. Uh, she and her husband are in Nantes. They came five hours to come to school in, in Paris. Um, as I said, most, a lot of our students are, are, are pastors. And from the first day they came, they said, we're going to have Rhema in Nantes. So we're planning in September to open in Nantes. And some pastors from Marseille are coming to see us next week. Yeah, two weeks' time to ask about Marseille. Marseille is the second city of France. So we're going to pr probably plan a school there. Nantes is the sixth city of France. And just very, very exciting. We're also helping Ken and Tonya Taylor with planting schools in Africa. It's just just growing and growing. A lot of these um, students that come are pastors or um, uh, working in the church. They've got a call in their life. They've had no um, formal Bible training. Now, there's not much choice in the French-speaking world. There's theological school, which often takes out the faith, yeah, takes out all the miracles, takes out the Holy Spirit, and then Rhema Bible Training Center <laughs> or college, which is putting the Bible in and putting the Holy Ghost in, and we need both, don't we? 
Okay, I want to show you something else we're doing, and I'm going to show you some books because we work with books. That was another mandate that God gave us to do. If you do what God's called you to do, you won't get worn out. If you add things to it, it might well wear you out. And we've been there and done that. So you have to stay with what God's called you to do. And he told us once we were in France, we needed to translate books and to print them in French. And uh, one of the most exciting things about it this year is that they've started printing them in Quebec. And soon they're going to be printing them in Africa. So we're really excited. We do all the hard work of getting them translated. We've got six people in our translation team. And, uh, and then we give them away free so they can print them. Um, in Africa and in Quebec. So you have these books in your, in your uh, bookstore. I would encourage you. If you haven't read this book, In Search of Timothy, this is our latest book. This is our 51st book. Anybody read this book? Okay, it looks like that in English, In Search of Timothy. A la recherche de Timothée. Excellent book. And then our 50th book was it called Les Longues. In English, it's Tongues. If you like the Holy Ghost, you want to read this book. They realized that they had not uh, written or compiled uh, the teachings of Brother Hagen, and he spoke a lot about tongues. It's called Tongues Beyond the Upper Room. And they compiled this. You read this book, it's going to get you praying like never before. It's phenomenal, that book. So we have that in French now. That was our 50th. Pentecost means 50. And then you have some other amazing books in your library as well. And we've just printed them with prayer. On two books on prayer. So if you're starting out in your Christian life, or if you don't really aren't sure about your prayer life, these, these books are just phenomenal. I only have one of them here. Uh, just 13 lessons on prayer. And then the final one I'm going to show you, and I'll put them up there so you can see them. This book is kind of the, the standard for everything else <laughs> taught by Rhema and by the Word of Faith, the Believer's Authority. And we just... We had the authority to believe, and now we've got the believer's authority. So we're very excited about that. I don't know how many. We're probably at about 600,000 books that have been printed. And everybody, every one of those books goes, and they go so far. The French-speaking world is huge. 33 countries speak French, and we intend to establish a Bible school there. The books are going in front of us, and uh, that's really good. So I want to give you some prayer points, things you can pray for us. Um, well, first, Thanksgiving. When we came last time, we really didn't have any partners. We were really starting out. We now have some great partners. Be faithfully with us. And the Lord said to me also, while we're here, you're expecting Americans to pay for what you're doing. Why don't you ask the French and the Swiss? And I hadn't had that thought. He said, you've invested 33 years there. Why don't you ask them? So we started asking the French and the Swiss. And it's just great to see how God's doing that. That's a praise report. What can you pray for uh, the Bible schools? Uh, we need teachers. And we have to raise them up because there are lots of English-speaking teachers that want to come, but the French love their language, and they really want to be taught in French. So we're working in, in ex establishing a school to, to train up teachers. We've got more and more of them teaching, but we need to accelerate that. And then we need teams. In every country, we, have, we need a team. In Paris, I have a great team. In Switzerland, I have a great team. In Nice, I have a great team. And you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far... Go with a team. We want to go far. Amen? So you can pray for that. And then for the books, we have 18 books ready to print or reprint. Four new ones, and then we will fulfill our part. There's a greater European book project, which is to put 26 uh, titles from the Faith Library uh, publications in 30 languages. And we have just four more. They're now translated, so we're going to print them in the next year um, so they can be available. We have them available for our students all in ebook form. We've never put an ebook out to um, 
to buy. We want to do that. We also have 17 of our books that have been read that they can listen to, and uh, we want to do that. So, lastly, you all heard about the attacks, the terrorist attacks in France. They continue. We have soldiers walking in the streets, in the airports. We've got used to it now. Full military gear with their machine guns. It's like, it's a little shock when you start, but now it's like, okay, it's not, will it happen again? It's when will it happen again? But something is extraordinary that happened in our city. We had 86 people killed by a terrorist in a truck. And one of our ladies got up, one of our graduates from Rhema, got up and said, this man has killed 86 people. I believe that each one of us can see 86 people saved. And they asked permission to go on the street. We'd had an evangelism school for already two years. And we said, yes, of course you can go on the street. So they go on the street, and all the churches who wouldn't speak to each other came together. And they come to our evangelism school now. They go out with the streets. And that is just phenomenal. Where sin abounds, grace does so much more abound. What the devil meant for evil... In, in our country and in our city, God is turning that for good, and it's the same in your life. You know, when the devil attacks you hard, just say, wait a minute, God wants to do something here. Do not lie down and die. Get yourself back up, because we, we've all been hit, we've all been hurt, because we live in this world. But what are you going to do with that hurt? Are you going to turn it around and say, I'm going to win people for the Lord? Laura's brother died at 19 on a motorcycle accident, and for 10 years we could not talk about it. It was just, we were gutted. And then the Lord said, now is the time, and he gave Laura ministry with young people, and we started seeing young men of 19 years old saved, and now they're pastors, now they're church leaders, and we meet them every time we go across France. It's like, oh my, Lord, you're wonderful. You've turned, he had just got saved, so we know he was in heaven. Be led by the Spirit of God. Do what God's called you to do. Don't do no, but don't do less. And uh, pastors, thank you very much for this time. We really appreciate it. We love being in this church. I listen to your pastor at least twice, if not three times a week. <laughs> it's just extraordinary what you have here. And we love being with you. If you come tonight, we'll show another video of another graduation. And we're going to talk about obedience and healing. And we're going to have a lot of joy. Amen? Thank you, pastor. Praise the Lord. Amen. I knew John and Laura um, at Rhema, as John said, when they were at Rhema, and I was doing prayer school. Uh, one thing I wanted you to share that you talked about to lunch, you, you forgot, I have my list in my head up here. One thing we wanted you to share, remember, was um, how that it seemed like things that uh, God is just opening up all of a sudden, that even relationship, you don't have to, don't have to take too long, oh, it's really late. Just do that really yeah, fast, how, how nothing was happening, and then now it's like oh, so much is over. Just that. Yeah, Laura, Laura said that, you know, it's, it's time for the rain, and we've seen that, and God said he would restore the, the years the locusts have eaten, and we've just seen that, people who did not want to know us. They didn't want to talk to us. They kind of pushed us aside. Why? Because we came into a, a city and we were preaching the whole gospel. And, and most of them were not, they weren't just not spirit-filled. They were anti-spirit. And uh, one of the pastors, the leader of the Evangelical Alliance came to us. When we started our transition and said, I've been mandated from the pastors to ask forgiveness for the way we've treated you the last 30 years. And then 
uh, God's just opening doors. He told us this, this year, he said networking. And he's just, we've been invited to, to some amazing meetings with national leaders from all over France. And they're asking us what we're doing. And they're all saying, well, we've got different training things. We've got, but we do not have a Bible training center. It's like, pardon? You can lift us, hold us like this. It's like, and God is just opening doors. A church, we went and helped. We've helped a lot of pastors that come into France. Some Germans came to Marseille 25 years ago, and they were very, very really struggling. So we just went and encouraged them. And uh, recently the Lord said to me, you need to get together with them. Laura had met the wife in a, a woman's conference. And uh, I said, okay, Lord. And I said to Laura, we need to go down. It's two hours from these. Let's go down and see them. And that night we had a graduates meeting. And who comes? Some of our graduates come with this couple. Now, they had a little church 25 years ago. They now have five churches. They have over 550 people in the church, and they're starting five other churches. And they said, we don't have a Bible training center. Would you consider coming to Marseille and start? That? And we just sing. And I said, well, do you know other churches? Because Rhema doesn't work with one church. Rhema works with all the churches. It's, it's, it's to serve the local churches. And I said, do you know the other pastors? He says, yes, when we have our leaders meeting, we have more pastors in our leaders meeting than any other pastoral meeting in the city of Marseille. I said, that's good for me. God's just opening doors. And, and, and you know, when you're, when you're working and you, you think, I'm doing everything I know to do, and, and it's like hard and hard and hard, you've got to go, what did God say? Am I doing what he told me to do? And suddenly, like a rushing mighty wind, <laughs> that's what happened the day of Pentecost, suddenly you'll see that breakthrough. But, you know, it's the darkest at midnight. Yeah, just before, well, not, not midnight, it's the darkest just before the dawn. It just and maybe you're in that place and it's, it feels really dark. We've been in places where it's like dark. And, you know, if God hadn't told us, if he hadn't shown us, if we didn't know in our inner being God had called us to France, we had every reason to quit. But we just knew that we knew and now we're seeing that. And the breakthrough is wonderful because we're seeing lives change. And all these graduates who are pastoring churches and helping churches and leading churches, uh, just wonderful, producing wonderful fruit. Did I do good? Thank you. Amen. Yeah, just set it on top there. Well, as we said before, we want to give you an opportunity to give. We want to encourage you to plant good seed into good ground. And the, uh, the ministry of John and Laura is good ground. Amen. The ushers are in the aisles. If they have offering envelopes in their hands, if you'd like a receipt for your giving, Again, let me say, if you'd like to give toward uh, their ministry, just write France on your offering envelope, and we'll know what you intend. Hallelujah. It, um, it's, well, it's certainly supernatural, but I think it even goes further than that. It's spectacular. A lot of the things that the Lord is doing to open up French-speaking countries to John and Laura. And... Um, and when you get in a situation like that, it's not anything that you could make happen if you tried to do it. But when it's God, it just works. Amen? Hallelujah. Well, let's pray over this offering. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for the privilege that we have to bring our tithes and offerings unto you, to give into good ground as John and Laura's ministry is. We thank you, Father. For multiplying the seed that's sown. For giving bread to the eater and seed to the sower. We thank you for spectacular increase in these last days, Lord. So that we can do the things that you've given us to do. In Jesus' precious name.
Amen. Well, once you've given in the offering, please stand and join us for another song.
Amen. Well, let's pray before you're seated. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for your written word, which is the power of God unto us to accomplish and to receive everything that Jesus purchased for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. We thank you, Father, that that word, your precious holy word, will impact our lives to cause us to be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. We ask these things in faith, Father, believing in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. We want to start in Mark chapter 11 again as we continue on the series on faith that we've been teaching for a number of weeks. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus is entering into the final week of his ministry here on the earth. It will be a little less, probably five days, until uh, the point in time that Jesus is uh, uh, betrayed and crucified. And in Mark chapter 11, it tells us about how that Jesus is making a journey between Jerusalem and Bethany. There's about four miles uh, distance separating these two cities. And Jesus comes to a fig tree expecting it to have leaves on it. It looked like it would be fruitful. It looked like everything was going right. But he found that it was only uh, leaves and no longer, uh, and it didn't have any figs on it. So Jesus cursed it. He said, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard him. And the next morning as they passed by, they, they saw that the fig tree was dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling into remembrance, said, Master, the fig tree which you cursed is withered away. In verse 22 of Mark chapter 11, Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. And when you stand praying, forgive, if you have all against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. Now, folks, this being the last week that Jesus will spend on the earth, everything that he has taught them, everything that he's revealed to them, every, uh, everything that he's shown them, relative to the subject of faith has already taken place. This is his last lesson on faith. And in my opinion, these are the most concise and encompassing scriptures that we have of anything and everything that was said or taught about the subject of faith. Now, I want you to look with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 tells us, well, the the letters of Paul rather tell us that the things that were that were done in the Old Testament the things that happened under the old covenant are to be examples for us there are things that we are to learn from concerning things in the Old Testament now I'm going to start reading in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7 wherefore as the Holy Ghost saith today if you will hear his voice harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Now clearly you can see that Paul is, a, is quoting a lot from the Old Testament 
in making the point that the Jewish Christians and the, these Hebrews that the letter is written to are believers. They're still adhering to and uh, of the impression that they have to continue in the law of Moses, keeping the Ten Commandments and such. But Paul is trying to instruct them and tell them that Jesus has fulfilled the law. So it's not a matter of if the law is good anymore. It's a, a, simply a matter that the law has been fulfilled so that there is one commandment given unto man, not many, not the 630 commandments that are given under the law. There's one commandment that we're to abide by and be controlled by, and that's the law of love. So when Paul is, right, I believe Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews, when he is certainly his message that he teaches them. So that when he's talking about these things, he's showing them that from the examples of, the, of Jewish history, their heritage, they can learn to operate by faith under the new covenant, the new and better covenant that God has given to us. Verse 12, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily. Now, the departing from the, uh, the living God, he's talking about the keeping of the law. He's saying if you continue keeping the law, you're departing from what God intends, which is faith. It's not about what you can do. It's not about your works. It's about what Jesus has already done. So when he talks about departing from the living God, he's not talking about something that we would recognize as, uh, as evil. He's not talking about lying or cheating or stealing. He's not talking about adultery. He's talking about keeping the old commandment that has already, the old covenant rather, that's already been fulfilled by Jesus. Now I'm sure there were a lot of Jews that thought, well, what harm could it do to keep the law? It was a controversial thing. Paul was really the only one certainly the main one, that was teaching that the law had been fulfilled and so the, it was no longer necessary for man to keep the, the commandments of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament. But I'm sure a lot of the Jews, some were, were anti-Jesus uh, when it comes to the law, but I'm sure there were a number of the Jews that thought, well, how do we know for sure? And since we don't know for sure, let's cover both of our bases. Let's get saved, ask Jesus into our heart, and then let's keep the law and continue in that too. But folks, anything, even good things, anything that draws you away from believing in what God has already accomplished, from believing in the finished work of Jesus, anything that takes you away from that will lead you into a path or lead you down a path that deprives you from what Jesus purchased for us. There are a lot of times in life where we have to pick things not based on whether they're good or bad, but commit ourselves to the things that are best. Because good things will lead you away from what's best. So take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold to the beginning of our confidence steadfast in the end. These people would have to be Christians. He's talking about them being in Christ. So he's not talking about sinners. He's not talking about people that are choosing the law instead of Jesus. He's talking about people that are adding the old covenant to the new covenant when that's not the way God had it worked out. While it is said... Verse 15 again, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. That's the same thing he said in verse 7 and 8. 
Now, the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. Paul takes the time to speak twice about a certain event that the Jews know it's part of their history. They're well acquainted with what, uh, with what he's referring to. He speaks twice about something that is supposed to be an example for us to lead us into the goodness of God and the, best, the better covenant rather than the old covenant. So it says, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some when they had heard did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So then we see that they could not enter in because of their unbelief. Now I'm going to go back, and I don't intend to, uh, to re-preach the same message that I did last Sunday. Although it would probably be a good idea, we'd probably get something from it anyway. But I want you to look with me to, to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. This is when God brought Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. Verses 21 and 22, and it says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them in the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. He took not, please notice verse 22, He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from among the people. Now skip with me to Numbers chapter 10. Two and a half years go by between the time that God led them out of Egypt, the bondage of Egypt, and parted the Red Sea for them to escape and destroyed Pharaoh's army. About two to two and a half years have gone by where during that time they've been to Mount Sinai. Moses has come down with the Ten Commandments. He's begun to feed them with manna. He's shown them his strength and his might. And they're seeing this pillar of fire by night and this pillar of cloud by day, day after day after day. Now in Numbers chapter 10, verse 11, it says, And it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month in the second year that the cloud was taken up from off the tabernacle of the testimony. And the children of Israel took their journeys out of the wilderness of Sinai and the cloud rested in the wilderness of Paran. Now, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to identify, first and foremost, that the Bible tells us very specifically that they're seeing this pillar of cloud every day. They're seeing this pillar of fire every night. It's abiding on, it's on top of, visible and, and easy to see. Now, I don't know how high the pillar was, but I can't imagine God just put a little bit of fire on top of the tabernacle. This pillar had to be big enough for all of Israel to see, which means it has to be tall enough for millions of people to be able to witness. The plan and the way that this thing operated was when the pillar of cloud began to move, then Israel would follow it. God has given them very, very specific instructions about what um, tribe, there's 12 tribes of Israel, which tribe was to be encamped in which place in uh, relation to the tabernacle. Some were supposed to be to the east, some were supposed to be to the north, south, west, and so forth. And it's, he's very particular about it. God's very particular about saying this tribe should be in this location and this tribe should be in that location. God's ordering this thing systematically. He's very highly organized in the way that he wants the people, his people, 
to witness this cloud. So it tells us in Numbers chapter 10 that the cloud moved to the wilderness of Paran. Skip with me now to Numbers chapter 13. Children of Israel come to the edge of the promised land. That's where the wilderness of Paran is. They send 12 spies into the land of Canaan to come back and report on what's the situation, what's going on in the promised land. Verse 25, and they, speaking of the 12 spies, returned from searching of the land after 40 days. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel under the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Where do they return to? When they come out of their activities spying out the land, where do they come back to? They come back to the wilderness of Paran. Now, Numbers chapter 10, we just read that that's where the cloud was. So they're returning to the place where the cloud is seen and is seen every day. The cloud didn't just appear on the days that God wanted to move, to move from one place to another. The cloud was always there. He didn't take it away from them under any circumstances. They come back to where the cloud is. Folks, I've been pastoring almost 34 years. We started this church almost 34 years ago, and I was in ministry for about four years before that. And I have just seen something about this story that I've talked about and taught on hundreds of times. And I just saw something about this story that has, well, it hadn't changed my understanding of what was going on, but it sure has added to it. When these 10 spies come back, and we won't go through all the details, you've heard, uh, if nothing else, you've heard it from me over and over again. But when the 10 spies come back and deliver their evil report, saying that they can't take the land that God said was theirs, saying that they are not strong enough to defeat the people in that land, the Amalekites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the, the Jebusites, and all the other groups that are there. When they come back and deliver their evil report to the congregation of Israel, millions of people, as we've said before many times, the estimates are between 2 and 7 million people that come out of Egypt. When they return to the congregation, they're coming back to the place where the cloud is. And when they're making their report and saying, we can't do this, they're ignoring it. They're ignoring the very presence of the cloud that is where they are. Now, I want to belabor this point for a little bit. This cloud is what separated them from the Egyptians when Pharaoh came back after them. This cloud is what they saw on Mount Sinai, where they said nobody could live through this. The thunderings and lightnings and blackness and uh, sound, noise, what they saw and everything else. That was this cloud. So when they say we can't do it, they're ignoring the very thing that they're in the presence of. In chapter 14, when the children of Israel make their decision, the congregation accepts the majority report, and they make their decision that they won't go in and take the promised land. God doesn't have to come from somewhere to get involved. He's right there. I've never seen that before. It never occurred to me. The one thing that got me 
thinking along this line is that this story, Numbers chapter 13, this story is what is held up for all the future generations of the Jewish people that Paul talks about. They call it the provocation. It's a pivotal point in Israel's history. It's a pivotal point in the history of the people that God chose to be his own. And in Numbers chapter 14, when God tells Moses, step back out of the way, I'm going to smite these people, do away with them once and for all, and I'll start over with you. Moses wouldn't let him do it, or at least tried to argue the point for why he shouldn't do it. But God didn't have to come from somewhere. He's right there. Folks, the most charitable, charitable way that I know to say this is that the people of Israel discounted, they took for granted, they didn't understand or didn't care about the presence of God that had delivered them already. The most charitable way I can say this is that they did not take advantage of the power that was already theirs. Now, why does Paul use that or, or talk about this example being so important? Because it's easy for us as the church to take for granted and not accept or discount the power that's supposed to be in us. They had visible evidence right there. And they said God can't do it. When they're saying that they're not able to take the land, in effect, they're saying God's not big enough to give it to us. No matter what he said, no matter what he promised, he's not big enough to bring it out, bring it off. How many times do we do that when we face adversity? How many times do we think first and foremost about the greater one in us? The circumstances in the situation may be too great for us, but is it too great for the God that's in us? Now, folks, I don't know how the geography of this stuff lines out. Because if you look at maps, ancient maps and so forth, it's hard to find two of them that agree on where things were. But can you imagine, I don't know if it happened this way or not, but can you imagine when the children of Israel come back to the promised land 40 years later and all the time that they have fought wars while they were going through the wilderness during those 40 years? Can't you imagine the enemies of Israel encamped or, or ensconced in, their, in the case of Jericho defended by these massive walls bigger than anything everybody's ever seen? Can you imagine what the thoughts are of these people, these enemies of Israel, when they see the cloud encamped on, uh, on top of and above the children of Israel. Can't you imagine in Jericho, people are standing on the wall saying, I wish we had one of those. <laughs> All the enemies of Israel that they had to fight and defeated during the 40 years of the wilderness. Why is anybody willing to fight these people? They can see the fire in the cloud. Everybody else, every other enemy that Israel had said, that's too big for us. 
And again, I'm pointing to the cloud and to the end of the fire. Every enemy of Israel, even in Jericho, you remember Rahab, 40 years after this takes place in Numbers chapter 13, Rahab says, we've been wondering where you were. We know our city and our land belongs to you. Now, why did she say they knew that? Well, she identifies the destruction of Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. She said, we've heard how God parted the Red Sea for you and you came over on dry ground. That was 40 years ago. If that's what they thought 40 years later, what were they thinking in Numbers chapter 13? The people in the promised land, since this was so new and so fresh, they probably would have just laid down. Said, here, you take the land. We'll go somewhere else. Because how do you fight against the God that shows himself as a pillar of fire? Whatever gods they're worshiping sure aren't manifesting themselves in that way. And what enemy of Israel would think anything other than that's got to be a more powerful God than we've got? I mean, if the Red Sea part, uh, crossing wasn't enough to witness the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud for themselves, who wants to stand against that? Where's Goliath at that point in time that comes out and says, I'll take on that pillar? So the children of Israel, according to Paul, and again, I, I, I say this because I believe Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews. According to Paul, this becomes the pivotal event between faith and unbelief. The recognition of the God that's more than enough and the position that you take, whether in their case on the outside or in our case on the inside, the position that you take relative to what that God in us can do and will do according to the promises of his word becomes the pivotal point between the choice for unbelief and death or life and faith. Are we looking at the one on the inside of us the way that we should? Or have we discounted the power of God on the inside of us and relegated it to just being, well, we're forgiven of our sin and we know when we get out of here we'll go to heaven. Is that as strong as God is in you? It's as strong as he is in a lot of the church. Who is the one that's on the inside of you? And what can he do? See, when Jesus talked about operating by faith, he talks about impossible things as commonplace. You can't ever find somewhere where Jesus says, well, faith will work in this small area, but something bigger than that, don't make the mistake of going too far. No, he talks about impossible things becoming commonplace. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 tells us the story of the centurion. 
I want to read beginning in verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. Actually, that's not an exact translation. The original language says, having come, I will heal him. Now, Jesus is not talking about coming to his house. He's talking about having come to the earth. Having come, I will heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy but that thou should come under my roof. But speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west. He's talking about the Gentiles. And shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom, talking about the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, shall be cast out into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed. He's not talking about believe now. He's talking about what you already expressed as your belief. As thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. So what does that tell us about this thing called faith? It tells us that it's tied directly to an understanding of authority. It has to be. Jesus commended this man, this centurion, as having great faith because he understood authority. Faith and authority are inseparable. Now back up to chapter 7. The end of chapter 7 has a lot to do with the things that we just read about the centurion. Jesus has just taught the parable about the wise man who builds his house on the rock as opposed to the unwise man, the foolish man that builds his house on the sand. Verse 28, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now I want you to notice something. It does not say that people were astonished at Jesus because of his power. It says they were astonished at his teaching, his doctrine. Jesus taught doctrine that amazed them. Now, what doctrine did he teach? Verse 29. He taught them as one having authority. You see the word one in the King James is in, the, is in italics? That means the translators added it. Now, I understand why the translators put it in. Because they're thinking that the end result of what Jesus had done himself was what the people were marveling at. In other words, they were marveling at the fact that he had power over sickness and disease. But that's not what he's teaching. He's teaching as having authority. The word as is the word how. The word having is the word hold. He's teaching them the, the doctrine that astonishes the crowd is the teaching that man has authority or that man holds authority. He's teaching them that Genesis 126 is still true. 
Genesis 1.26 says at the, in the beginning, in the creation account, God said, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness, and let him have dominion over the works of our hands. God gave man authority on the earth. Now, God never changes. That means God's will never changes. If it was God's will in the beginning for man to have authority, it's his will today for man to have authority. So Jesus is simply teaching that man has authority. He's teaching that man has authority. So he comes to the centurion who understands authority, and Jesus says, wow. I never knew that anybody would develop that kind of faith. And he indicates by saying, I've not found this, this faith, so great a faith, no, not in Israel. If anybody is going to have great faith, he's expecting it to be the Jews who could have developed their faith, certainly had the potential for it. But he didn't find that among the Jews, but he found that with this guy, this centurion. And the understanding of that authority, the exercise of the authority that he understood was enough to bring his servant back into health. So Jesus' doctrine is teaching that man has been given authority. Well, apparently man didn't lose his authority when he fell. Now the devil would like to make you think so. But if man lost his authority, then why did God say throughout the old covenant, I set before you blessing and cursing, life and death, choose life. See, if man doesn't have authority, what's the point in trying to make a choice? And that's the way the devil wants to make you think it works. The devil wants to make you think that he's the one that has authority. He's in charge. So you're going to have to put up with whatever comes. But remember we said in Mark 11, this is the last week of Jesus' life on the earth before he goes to the cross. That means all the other things he taught them about faith or authority or anything else that he taught them has already taken place. Let's look at a couple of those. Look with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, I want to start reading with verse 35. It says, In the same day when the evening was come, he said unto them, Let us pass over to the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awakened him and said, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Jesus, we're about to die. You might want to watch this. And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, folks, I don't, I don't discount one part of this story. I accept and understand why they did what they did, why they said what they did. I get it. But why does Jesus say they have no faith when they woke him up expecting him to do something about the problem? Because they had the same authority that he had by virtue of being a human being on this earth. When he says, peace, be still, and then turns to them and says, why is it that you have no faith? He's saying, why didn't you rebuke the wind? 
Now, I know why they didn't. They didn't rebuke the wind any more than we would rebuke the wind. They don't know anything about this authority stuff. They certainly don't know how far man's authority goes. But when Jesus ties this event into them having no faith, remember there are two different places. Well, actually there are more of those, but there are two specifically that, that bring it out more clearly than anything else. One is in Luke chapter 17. The situation is that the disciples come to Jesus and, say, and ask the question, how often should I forgive somebody that does me wrong? And they threw out a number that they thought was big. Seven times a day? And Jesus turns around and says, no, not seven times a day, but seven times 70. And the disciples respond, now they've been blown out of the water. And they respond, they said, Lord, increase our faith. Now, you've got to commend them because they know something about forgiveness that most Christians don't. They already understand that forgiveness has to be given by faith. Because if you're waiting for your feelings to line up with your forgiveness, that'll never happen. The only way you'll ever change your feelings is by forgiving by faith. It doesn't work beforehand. It comes afterwards. So they said, Lord, increase our faith. And then Jesus says something so simple, but it's so profound. Jesus says, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might say. Luke chapter 17, verse 5 says, you might say. The word might is the word would. If you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, even the smallest amount of faith, you would say to this sycamine tree, be uh, be." plucked up from the roots and cast into the sea and it should obey you he says faith even on the smallest level speaks now in Matthew chapter 21 there's a situation where Jesus cast the devil out of a little boy when the disciples couldn't and they come to him and they ask why couldn't we do this and Jesus says it was because of your unbelief For if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, he's back to that smallest amount of faith. If you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, in this case it says you shall say. But it's the same word. It's the word would. If you have faith in even the smallest amount, you will say under this mountain. In that case, in Matthew 21, he was talking about moving a mountain. You say to this mountain, be plucked up and cast into the sea and it should obey you. Now, folks, this is the basics and the foundation of everything that Jesus taught his disciples. Faith speaks. Faith speaks. Well, how do we know if we have enough faith to speak? Speak first and wonder about the faith later. Speak first. And then you can worry about the measure later on. Faith speaks. So when Jesus says, and he's already taught these guys these things. When Jesus says, how is it that you have no faith? He's literally saying, if you put these things together, he's literally saying, why aren't you talking to the wind? Why aren't you rebuking the waves? Why aren't you doing what I just did? And all he did was peace be still. Let me show you another example. Look with me to Matthew chapter 14. 
beginning in verse 22. Straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him into the, onto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is the Spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Now, Jesus could have done any number of things in this point. He could have said, no, Peter, this is not for you. I am the son of God. One thing I like about Peter is that Peter knew if it was Jesus, he'd want him to, to experience it too. If this really was Jesus, Jesus never said no to it, the disciples experiencing whatever he was doing as well. So he says, if it's you. Bid me come unto thee on the water. And Jesus just simply says, come. He doesn't explain to him what the ins and outs are of walking on the water. He doesn't caution him. He doesn't stop and say, Peter, you sure you got enough faith for this? He just said, come. Folks, there's enough power in one word from God that will enable us to walk on whatever situations and circumstances that could possibly ever occur. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Now notice what Jesus asked Peter in verse 31. As he began to sing, Jesus grabbed him. And said, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Now the wherefore didst thou doubt simply means why did you allow what you saw and felt to change what you said? Peter said, Lord, if it's you, say the word so that I can walk on the water with you. Jesus said the word come. And that's all it took. See folks when God has spoken to you about doing something. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter how difficult it appears. It doesn't matter how strong the opposition is. When you've got the word of God for something. That settles the issue. It settles the issue as far as God's concerned. Forever O Lord thy word is settled in heaven. Well, what makes the difference in whether it's settled in you? Whether you agree with it or not. Whether you, through faith, exercise your authority 
to take advantage of whatever God has said. Now, I don't know too many people that really need to walk on water. I mean, it's not like you go in your backyard and practice in the pool. But there are a lot of things that we get ourselves into that seem to be too big for us. Now, Peter obviously allowed something to happen that took him away from the miracle that he was already experiencing. This is one thing that's always amazed me. You'll get somebody right in the middle of something. Maybe it's standing in faith for, the, uh, for healing or something like that. Maybe it's believing God for their finances. Whatever the case is, they'll get in the middle of something and, and it's obvious that God is starting to work and turn things around. And then the devil will speak to him and say, and say something like, you don't have enough faith for this. Well, folks, if you didn't have enough faith for it, how did it get started in the first place? He wants to try to make you think that things have changed. Well, the word never changes. So what difference does it make if circumstances do? What difference does it matter or do, what difference does it make if you feel pain in your body after you claim your healing? See, man's the one with authority. And that's the thing. And folks, I've got to tell you, this blew me away when I realized that people were astonished at Jesus' teachings. Because I had the same religious idea that most Christians do. They must have been amazed at him because he displayed authority. He displayed the power of God. But that's not what it says. The scripture says they were amazed at his doctrine. For he taught them how to hold authority. In other words, he taught them how to exercise authority. In other words, he taught them that faith is believing in the heart and speaking with the mouth. And it doesn't get any simpler than that. Now, Peter allowed doubt in his heart. It doesn't tell us anything about what Peter said. But something changed. Now, what started this miracle was Jesus said, come. And no matter what Peter felt, no matter the wind, no matter the waves, no matter any of, uh, concerning anything or any part of this circumstance, the circumstances are not strong enough to change the truth of God's word and the results, the miracle results that Peter was experiencing. There's only one thing that it could have caused him to sink. And that's if he stopped coming to Jesus. Because the word that Jesus spoke was come. I've heard sermons on keeping your eyes on Jesus and it's a lovely thought. But there are people that, are, that would say that if Peter hadn't quit looking at Jesus, if he hadn't looked at the wind and the waves and the results around him, then he would have made it. Well, if that was true, then Jesus would have said, come, but make sure you keep your eyes on me. There's only one thing that could have changed, and that's if Peter stopped coming. Now, the reason that he stopped coming is everything. The reason he stopped on his journey to Jesus 
was because of the wind that he felt and the waves that he saw. But Peter could have closed his eyes. He could have turned around and walked. He could have moonwalked back to, to where Jesus was. As long as he keeps acting on what Jesus said. And folks, that's the same truth for you and me. For as long as we will act on what Jesus says. Believe in the truth of his word. Speak it with our mouths. There's nothing the devil can do to stop it from coming to, to pass. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. God speaking his word is one. You speaking his word is two. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. That means every display of the power of God is simply finding what God's word says about the use of that power, you agreeing with it by speaking it. Yeah, but I just don't feel like I have enough faith. And I know no matter what I say, I know that I'm really not believing that. Both the folks, the Bible says that faith is identified by the words that you speak. The devil wants to make you think that you've got to store up more faith, more faith, more faith, more faith, more faith, more faith. We need to keep hearing and hearing the word, and that's great. That's, that's wonderful. But the devil wants to make you think that you can only develop that kind of great faith after years, after years, after years, after years. And then just maybe your words will do something. But the Bible says your words will do something no matter what. The Bible says you will have what you say. Well, how do I know if I'm believing or not? What are you saying? What you say is what you believe. What you say is what you believe. So the best advice I can give you on exercising authority in your life is to say what God's word says. And since his word never changes, don't change what you ever say. It all comes down to believing in the greater one within you. Because the greater one is in us. Because his word is true. We choose to speak and say what God says. Folks, you can't ever be lying if you're saying what God says. It's impossible to lie saying what God says. The devil will try to tell you you're lying. You know this isn't true. If you're saying what God said, it can't be a lie. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that you've given us authority to operate in this life. You've given us your word to tell us and reveal to us what your will is. And because we believe in you and believe in your word and the power thereof, we declare that we are exactly who you say we are. Your word says we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. So we say we're the righteousness of God. Your word says Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And with his stripes we were healed. So we say that we were healed. You said that Jesus was made poor for our sakes. 
so that we through his poverty might be made rich. So we say we've been made rich. Your word says that Jesus left his peace for us. Not the peace that the world understands, but the peace that passes understanding. So we say we operate in perfect peace. Thank you, Father, that your word is always true. And because it is always true, we are who you say we are. We can do what you said we can do. Father, I would ask for each and every one of us that you would reveal yourself to us in such a great and mighty way that we would recognize, understand, and act on the fact that the greater one lives in us. That your power that resides within our spirits, our hearts, is and always will be greater than anything the devil can bring up against us. Say that with me. Say the greater one lives in me. The greater one lives in me. Now, folks, if the greater one lives in us, that means the devil, no matter how great he pretends himself to be, that means the greater one in us is always greater than anything the devil can ever do. So that's one lie you can stop listening to right off the bat. When the devil tells you he's greater than you or he's, he's stronger than you, he's not stronger than the one who's in you, and he never will be. Amen? Amen. Say it with me. The Lord is good. And his mercy endures forever. Thank you so much for being with us. Don't forget John and Laura's table. They've got set back up in the back. If you want information on being partners with their ministry, we